So glad to be with you again today to study another lesson in Second Samuel, uh, studying more about David's life and the trials and tribulations and challenges that he went through that are similar to the many of what we go through today. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity we have to study together. Even when we're not together physically, we're able to be with one another, Lord, on the uh, video and be able to study God's word together, gleaning a better understanding, Lord, of what your word says to us and how we live our lives. Please bless us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we ended with chapter 9. And while we are still steady going forward, towards chapter 24 there there's a lot of ground to cover today and so i will be reading chapters uh, 11 and 12 to you today but as i talked about before it's important that you read god's word yourself and that you don't just depend on me to read it to you uh, therefore i will not be reading all of the scriptures but will be referring to them uh, we won't be reading chapter 10 today but when you do read chapter 10 you will see that uh, like I like to say about chapter 10, don't mess with God's people. You see, David was feeling sorrowful for uh, one that died over in, in uh, that was under King Amon. And he sent his delegates over to show compassion, even send gifts. And, and they disrespected David by sending those men back um, who were humiliated, cut their beards and, and, and cut most of their clothes off of them. And then those folks decided to mount a siege up against David. So David went and I mean, well, he sent his men and basically they killed all those folks that were coming after them. This king had decided to get uh, help from other kingdoms, other other nations. And at the end, those nations realized that God was on David's side and that uh, that they lost so many people. They were, they were done with that king and said they would never go with him again. And they sided with Israel. And that's what we get from chapter 10. Whereas we move on into chapter 11, we read it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on uh, on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab saying, send me uh, Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Then Uriah had, when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? 
And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my, my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. And charged the messenger saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he say to you, says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerabasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then he drove, we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly more flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And they grew up together with him and with his children. It ate, at his, ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wafering or wayfaring man who had come to him. Well, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do the evil, to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have Given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he did not. Nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. Then when David saw that his servants were whispering, they perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then the servant said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in to her and lay with her. So she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and he sent word by the hand of Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be be called after my name so david gathered all the people together and went to rabba fought against it and took it <clears throat> then he took his took their king's crown from his head his weight was a talent of gold with precious stones and it was set on david's head 
Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in, in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Key verse from this lesson is uh, verse seven, verses seven and 13. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And many of you uh, know of the famous scene that is found in Titan, 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 excuse me. Even if you haven't seen the movie, though, you you all get the picture of Leon, Leonardo DiCaprio standing at the bow or the bow of the boat or the ship. Titan is shouting, I am the king of the world. Well, David was king of the world. Literally, he was the victor in many battles. and He had received great promises from God. God had promised to establish a kingdom through the lineage of David that would stand forever. Because of God's promise, David knelt in reverence, declaring the, the sovereignty of God. He found that he could show God kindness to uh, God's kindness to Mephibosheth. We read about that last week. And David had reached a pinnacle in life that few ever reached. But when David reached that pinnacle, he did what many of us do. He fell. David was a warrior. It was spring. He was supposed to be off at war. Instead, he was at home watching a woman bathe from his rooftop. Looking simply wasn't enough for him. He had to have her. And then she was pregnant. The worst news um, is the pregnancy can't be pinned on Bathsheba's husband, as we read, because he is where David should have been at war. So as we read, David schemed and planned and the drama ends with Bathsheba's husband being murdered. Now, when we read this, excuse me, <coughs> oftentimes we read it, Uriah has died and then David brings her home. And she has the baby and, you know, next thing we know, Nathan is coming to see David. But think about this. Months have passed. And David is back to normal or so he thinks. A visit from uh, Nathan, the prophet, reminds him of his grave error. And the story about a man's small lamb brings him to his knees as he recognizes the story is about him. At some point in our lives, we all have sinned. At some point, is every day. Something has happened that has caused us to see our sin and leads us to a realization that we have sinned against God. Maybe our sin is not the same sin as David's. Maybe it's the sin of apathy, lack of involvement, temper, addiction, or even just, you know, a little small lie which is a lie within itself. But in reality, all sin is the same. It's all against God. And when we come face to face with our sin, our excuses fall to the floor. We stand before God guilty, but the same God against whom we have sinned uh, wants us to find him. And he wants desperately to forgive us. Do we hear that? God wants to forgive us. 
So how do we find God when we have sinned? When, how do we find God when we've messed up? Not made mistakes when we've sinned. Let's call sin what it is. They're not mistakes. They're sin. How do we find God when we are in our sins? One of the first great lessons we learn from this chapter in David's life is what not to do when we are guilty of sin. You see, David's plan to cover up his sin only made the sin grow into even more sin. Our tendency is to deny sin, our own sin. From an early age, we learn to say, I didn't do it. When our parents ask us, you know, who left the dishes in the sink or who left this door open or so on and so forth. I, I didn't do it. From David, we learn two major problems with trying to cover up sin. One, God knows. Two, secrets have a way of reaching the surface. If you look in Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23, you will see that Moses gave the tribes of Reuben and Gad a message that we often need to be reminded of. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Do you remember when you were a child and your parents asked you a question whose answer they already knew? Maybe you're a parent now and you know what you know the answer to a question that you're getting ready to ask your child. But you are asking them, uh oh. Okay, sorry about that. Hopefully we just had a little break there. Uh Again, they didn't do they didn't do that to trap you. Your parents didn't do that to trap you when they were asking you a question, but to get your attention. God had to get David's attention, so he used the prophet Nathan to do it. The story Nathan told was appalling. Why would a rich man with a pasture full of sheep steal a poor man's pet lamb to cook for company? David was horrified and demanded the man to be brought to justice. The next words he heard resonated in his ears like clanging cymbals in a closed room. You are the man. Yet here's a lesson you mustn't miss. God never would have tried to get David's attention through Nathan if he did not love him. God does many things to get our attention. We often look at those attention getters as punishment. But in reality, he's just trying to wake us up so we will come back to him. In David's case, months had passed. The child had been born, and in his mind, he may have been thinking, well, it worked. I got away with it. What an awful place that would have been for David's life to end, don't you think? God did not want that for David, and he does not want that for you or me. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. God did not want David to be lost in his sin. We should be thankful for his wake up calls because sometimes that's what it takes for us to face our sins. Oftentimes when someone repents of a public sin, someone in the congregation sitting right there in, in, in the church building may say they only repented because they got caught. Then praise God they got caught. That's what it sometimes takes for people to come clean and there is freedom in coming clean. He who conceals his sins, Proverbs 28, 13, does not prosper. Well, whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. 
Remember, you or me and myself, you and me, we don't have a heaven or hell to put someone in. God wants us to repent so that he can forgive us when we ask for forgiveness. Let's not sit back and point the finger and say, well, they only, you know, they only said something because somebody called them or they keep coming forward every Sunday asking for forgiveness. You know, then that forget they're asking for forgiveness from God. And they're just asking you to pray for them. Pray for them. Have an ounce of mercy that God gives to us if you can. The story is told about a well-known playwright who played a prank on um, who once sent an identical uh, anonymous letter to 10 different notable men in London. The note said, we know what you have done. If you don't want to be exposed, leave town within six months. All 10 of those men that received the letter, they moved. That was a terrible prank, but it shows the awesome power of guilt, don't you think? This story from the life of David shows not only the power of guilt, but the freedom of confession. David's words, I have sinned against the Lord, led him to repentance. True repentance leads to freedom that can only come from a restored relationship with God. In Psalm 51, we read David's plea before God to be clean after being confronted. I'd like to read that to you here. It's in Psalm 51, where David says, verse, starting at verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. David's plea before God to be clean after being confronted with his sin is seen there in Psalm 51. David walks away from his prayer forgiven. Yes, there were consequences to face, but he was better equipped to face the consequences because he knew he had been forgiven. There's a movie, uh, the Shawshank Redemption, that Morgan Freeman plays in as a prisoner named Red. There was a scene where Red is meeting with the parole board. Now, he's been in jail for over 40 years. And the board asked him, asked him, do you feel that you've been rehabilitated? And Red says, rehabilitated? Now, let me see. And the board tries to explain to Red what rehabilitated means. But Red says, I know what you think it means, but to me... It's just a word you politicians use so that you can sign your papers and stamp your forms. What you really want to know is, am I sorry for what I did? Yes. Now the day goes by when I don't feel regret for the families I hurt, for the people I let down. I wish I could go back and talk to that foolish boy I used to be. Talk some sense into him. Tell him how things really are. But I can't. And all that stuff is this broken down old man. And I have to live with what I've done for the rest of my life. Red was haunted with regret by sins that he had uh, committed 40 years ago. Is there something I would ask you in your past that you wish you could take back? We learn from the story of David that we need to pour it out before God. Then let it go. 
God can't fully use us for his purposes until we do. We have some questions now for you to, to answer. How does that how does not being where we are supposed to be and doing what we are supposed to be to do leave us vulnerable to sin? Why do we have the natural tendency to stray and cover up our sin? Can you recall any wake up calls in hindsight you realize were acts of grace from God? Second Samuel twelve twenty two to twenty three, David seems at peace with the death of his son. Why do you think this is? In Psalm fifty one, David says the cleansing must be complete before he is able to teach. How can unconfessed sin affect our teaching and teaching of others? I'll give you just a moment to copy those down if you need to. Now, as I said, we have lots of reading to do, and <clears throat> I I really hope that you go about reading the next few chapters. Uh, we'll be covering chapters uh, 13 through 19 for the next couple of weeks, and, and today we'll hit upon a few of those verses through those chapters, uh, and I'll refer back to them. Um, the first part of the lesson that we just completed we were trying to find God when when we sin finding God when I sin and now we're trying to find God in midst of tragedy is he there is God there when we have tragedy in second Samuel chapter 18 verse 33 the scripture says the king was shaken he went up to the room over the gateway and wept as he went he said oh my son Absalom my son my son Absalom if only I had died instead of you oh Absalom my son my son Second Samuel eighteen thirty three again that's a key verse from there you know it's always difficult to know what to say after a tragedy preachers and Bible class teachers struggled and struggled to find the right words after uh, great tragic events and great meaning large and big events that touch so many people, such as, you know, uh, 9-11 or September 11th, 2001, when Hurricane Katrina hit, um, the problems and the tragedies that we have seen throughout the years, but most especially last year with the racial divide in the country, with um, so much going on, and uh, about the earthquakes that happened, the earthquake and the tsunami that happened in Japan here recently in the last few years. Even more difficult, though, is speaking about tragedies that have directly impacted the church and the community. When tragedy hits home, finding God's presence is sometimes very challenging. David was no, long, uh, no stranger to tragedy. He lost his best friend in a bloody battle, and his young son died after his sin with Bathsheba. The tragedy we read about in Second Samuel chapters 13 through 18 could not have hit any closer to home as it involved David's daughter and two sons. It's a story involving incest, rape, revenge, murder, insurrection, and execution. Even God's closest followers are not exempt from this kind of horrific tragedy. The story we read in these chapters looks like a plot from a afternoon soap opera, but I've been saying it, right? 
David's son, Amnon, takes sexual advantage of his half-sister, Tamar. Although King David was furious, the text gives us no indication that he did anything about it. So Absalom, Tamar's full brother, takes matters into his own hands and has Amnon murdered. Throughout this ordeal, Absalom sees weakness in his father, David, and mounts a coup. David finds himself running for his life and gathers a mighty army to regain his throne from uh, Absalom. In the process of the battle, Absalom is executed. This is the third son David has has laid to rest. Although Absalom was in uh, was was an insurrectionist, that is, he was still David's son, and his death was still a tragedy to a father who loved him. There's something interesting about these six chapters of Scripture. You don't see God's name mentioned much. It's even difficult to see him working at times, although we know he is there. And we know that he was working. My question to you is, why is it often difficult to find God in the midst of tragedy? And I will share with you that when um, there was a time when. Um, well, when I was we were living uh, abroad. And in the same year. Uh, I lost we lost four family members and September 11 happened all around the same time. We buried a son, we buried uh, a brother, a grandmother, great-grandmother, and an aunt. And September 11 happened shortly thereafter. And where we were at, we were on lockdown because of uh, some really bad storms that just seemed like they would not leave the area. And yet, life went on and we still had to teach we got an opportunity to teach others about Christ because we could see God in all that was going on. And I'll tell you, it's difficult to find God in tragedy because this he's often ignored by those who cause it. Now, I'm not saying that what happened to us is the reason why um, we were the reasons why it happened. But I will tell you that sometimes uh, when tragedy happens in general, it's because uh, we can't find God because he is often ignored until, you know, we need him. Right. Amnon's pursuit of Tamar was based on his own desires and not God's. And his friend, Jonadab, was no Nathan. He wasn't a good friend at all. I don't think he did not encourage him to do what was right. Absalom's revenge certainly was not based in God's will. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. Romans twelve nineteen, The reason it is difficult to find God in this story is because evil is prominent in this story. The events that we often struggle to explain are a result of the evil that lie that lives in this world or that lives in this world. I should say Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world. And Paul reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians six twelve. It is also difficult to find God in tragedy because sometimes those in power often do not do his will. 
When Amnon raped Tamar, David had a responsibility as both a father and a king to punish him. And according to 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 21 to 23, he did not fulfill his responsibility. As a result, Absalom took the problem into his own hands. Children will do this. If one child takes a toy from another child and the parent is preoccupied or doesn't just is not paying attention, it won't be long before you hear a scream, right? When Absalom murdered Amnon, David again had a responsibility as a, um, both a father and a king to punish him. According to 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 30 through 37, he again did not fulfill his responsibility. As a result, Absalom sees weakness in his father and usurps the throne. During the battle that ensues, Absalom is killed. Through this story of family tragedy, we learn that when evil goes unpunished, it only grows and gets worse. Here it is now. Parents have a responsibility to punish their children. Many family tragedies could be averted if children were held accountable for their actions. David was the classic permissive parent. Maybe he saw his children making the same mistakes he did and felt unqualified to make a judgment. You ever feel that way? If a child's actions are against the will of God, it is our responsibility to dis discipline, even if we made the same mistakes. And furthermore, Governments have a responsibility to punish criminals. God came up with the idea of law. God came up with justice. And when when the law is not upheld and justice is not fulfilled, evil only spreads. Now, please understand that this is not a political statement. It is a biblical statement. See, David failed to fulfill God's will in matters of law and justice. You have to go back and read uh, the book of Leviticus to understand more closely where I'm talking about, especially since David and all the other Jews there or Israelites fell up under the old law. And when law and justice is not fulfilled, it is difficult to find God because, well, we have silenced one of his most powerful tools. It is also difficult to find God in tragedy, tragedy but it is not impossible. Tragedies leave even the most seasoned of believers wondering, where are you, God? Are you listening? Do you care? It's difficult to see past the evil and the sin and the injustice. The inability to see past those things leads to frustration, doubts, and anger. And although finding God in tragedy can be difficult, the example of David shows us that we can Psalm 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God would not deliver him. God would not deliver him, but you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head or lift. Yes, lift up my head to the Lord. I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. As David is fleeing from Absalom. He prays this prayer. Even in his darkest hour, he recognized that God was his shield. I want to remind you, it doesn't matter where you are in your life, what tragedies and heartaches are happening to you or others that are affecting you. 
God is always and can always be your shield. It's never too dark for him. He brings the light. When tragedy strikes, we are often overcome by fear. Yet David goes on to say, I will not fear with 10,000 drawn up on every side. David didn't know the outcome when he prayed the prayer. Listen to this. He knew who would deliver him. Do you know who would deliver you? The same God that was of David's. That was David's is our same God. When tragedy strikes, uh, strikes, we are often overcome by questions and left with a feeling of anxiety. David felt that anxiety. Where are we supposed to give our anxieties? To the Lord. And it caused him to run. But then he realized something we often forget. From the Lord comes deliverance. It was only then that he began running in the right direction. So when we have difficulty seeing God in the midst of tragedy, I want you to remember these things here. We can rest assured that he is in the same place he was when Adam and Eve failed, when they rebelled, waiting on them to uh, to, waiting to cover um, their sins. He is in the same place he was when Noah built an ark, protecting him from disaster. God is in the same place he was when Job lost everything he had, proving himself to be God despite unfortunate circumstances. God is in the same place he was when Abraham's faith wavered, safeguarding the fulfillment of his promise. He's in the same place he was when Joseph was rotten in jail. Think about it. Joseph, not only in jail, but in that pit. And and, and, and and in Potiphar's house and, and then in jail and waiting all that time, he's in the same place, accomplishing his perfect will. God is in the same place he was when Moses was on the backside of the desert, preparing him for greater service. He's in the same place he was when Samson was groping in darkness, strengthening him in his hour of weakness. He's in the same place he was when Jonah was being swallowed by a fish, teaching him that God's way is best. He's in the same place he was when Peter and John were beaten for preaching the gospel, giving them greater opportunities for sharing the good news of Christ. He's in the same place he was when Jesus hung on the cross, drawing men unto himself. Although we may be surprised when tragedies hit, God is not. God has not shot was not shot by the events around the Amon or Amnon, excuse me, and Absalom, but he was saddened by it. God is still saddened by tragedies. And we can take comfort in the fact that he saw it coming. Our tragedies, that is. If he saw it coming, he also knows how to deliver us from it. He also knows more than any other how to comfort those affected by tragedy. God himself faced tragedy when his son was nailed to the cross. Now, if God is not exempt from tragedy, why do we think we should be? Questions for us today. Have you ever had to stand before a crowd and teach after uh, tragedy? What did you say? Can you tell how God helped you through it? When we lost our son, it was very hard. To continue to keep teaching, preparing lessons, 
getting up preaching. But God saw us through it. How do you parents often contribute to the bad behavior of their children? How can we overcome the anxiety that tragedy often brings? And what is the ultimate root of all suffering and tragedy? As you write down or and contemplate these questions, I encourage you to get into God's word and read further in 2 Samuel. We'll be picking up in uh, chapter 16 next week. Please read 16 through chapter 20. We'll be speaking on uh, finding God when I need him most. Seems like we always need God, huh? And we always need him most. But, you know, there are times when you feel like I just need him. I need him now. And we're also be talking about finding God in the broken pieces of our lives, which I think is very appropriate for today on uh, today's time thank you all for joining with me and, and i hope you have a blessed day and that you continue to be a blessing to others as god is blessing you